Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In the May-June issue, Nick Pinkerton grapples with the aesthetic and narrative principle that has come to define our era, the cinema of glut, most recently exemplified by Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Rather than one pop culture artifact or trend supplanting another, it's a matter of accumulation without end, the whole thing eventually taking on a life of its own. In this episode, I was joined by... Uh, Nick Pinkerton, traveling film critic and author of a piece on the aesthetic of glut in the most recent issue of Film Comment. And... Ed Halter, critic and curator, and I run Light Industry in Brooklyn. To discuss the interactions, or stoppage of interactions, between all forms of pop culture and net art. And, if you're in New York, please come to the Film Society of Lincoln Center for our latest Film Comment free talk, with Ari Aster, who is the director of Hereditary. It will be moderated by Michael Koreski, a favorite of the magazine and this podcast. Um, it starts at 7 p.m., so get there early. Also, before we get into the conversation, I wanted to let you all know that this is my last podcast as host at Film Comment. I'm moving on to Harper's Magazine to work on their website and digital projects. I have really, 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 really enjoyed hosting the Film Comment podcast, and I cannot begin to tell you how much I've enjoyed speaking with all the amazing guests that we've had on, um, and I wish I hadn't been so sick during the recording of this last episode. I hope you'll continue to be curious about movies and what all of Film Comment's blindingly intelligent contributors have to say, either in print, on this podcast, or both. Um, thanks for listening. You haven't heard the last of me. I still will contribute to the magazine in other ways. Now here's the conversation. And Nick, you mentioned your piece in your little intro, so let's just dive right in. I thought that was expected. That was ooh, anything. Oh. Ha- anything can happen. <laughs> anything. We we live in that new reality now. What do you mean by the glut aesthetic? What the well, heck is this glut about? Well, Violet, I think the impetus for it was. Going through, you know, for, really for a number of years and kind of seeing this vague aesthetic that seemed to be held in common by a lot of new media art, by a lot of music, particularly in the sort of mashup idiom. And seeing this sort of thing running through a lot of different media, which could only be tied together by a sort of dumpster diving kind of tendency and this tendency to bring together a lot of random pop detritus and sort of spackle it together, decoupage it together into new recombinations. And uh, as Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One came along the pike, a movie which I saw and enjoyed as a work of entertainment, but also saw as kind of exemplifying this tendency in a multiplex context. It seemed like as good an opportunity as any to try to lasso together all these disparate things and see what precisely was going on here. And I don't know if it was in any way, shape, or form 
successful, but it was basically like, okay, I see that there is a large movie coming out, and maybe I can sort of use this as a pretext or a jumping-off point to try to figure out what this very, very loose certain tendency is that I've been seeing for a number of years now. And is Nick hallucinating, or is this a real thing? Uh, no, I think that he, I really liked his uh, piece because I think it does nail uh, a tendency I've also been thinking about for a long time. One thing is that this tendency, as Nick points out in the article, is something that is not brand new, but it's been maybe, maybe we might say it's increasing or accelerating. Mm -hmm. You know, we're reaching a kind of peak. Uh, as you said, you don't even want to call it nostalgia anymore because it seems something much flatter than that. You know, it's l less emotional than that. It's some sort of just kind of collecting of the past as a bunch of intellectual property objects you know and there's something about that that i mean i think it was really interesting you saw how that kind of plays out in various uh, various ways i had a question for you though after a, a, a more film nerd question <laughs> after after reading it i'm curious what you think is the relationship of this moment and this film to another spielberg produced film which is uh who framed roger rabbit mm. which does this yes. in an earlier way but in a very I mean, in a similar way to this or and in between the two, we could talk about Wreck-It Ralph or not. <laughs> but I'm just curious, do you think that do you think that Roger Rabbit is kind of an early precursor of this idea? Or do you think that there's something qualitatively different about that moment? I think what's qualitatively different is that that tendency has maybe long been at work in animation. Yeah. And particularly like Looney Tunes. Yeah. And what is different, I think, about the moment in pop cinema that we're living in is that, and this has been the case for some time, like any sort of hard and fast barrier between live action so-called filmmaking and animated filmmaking has broken down a very, very long time ago. So uh, I find it very difficult to like think of a hard and fast designation between an animated film and a live action film, especially when we're talking about something like Ready Player One, which um, all of which is to say, no, I think that there's very much uh, auguries of this sort of thing in something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And, and yeah, Who Framed Roger Rabbit does sort of set the table for something like this. Mm. But What's interesting to me is in in terms of like the actual in this sort of erosion of these traditional boundaries, you don't see, um, let's say, compositions. Compositionally, the frame is very different now as opposed to the way it was when it was purely photography or purely animation. And rather than sort of taking the best of both worlds, it just seems to be a very messy, here's everything all at once sort of aesthetic. And it's like, because of, ver let's say, vernacular creativity, things like Instagram, photographers who put themselves into fake you know they'll take a photo of themselves in their room and then photoshop a, themselves into the woods let's say things like that um there seems to be sort of like a breaking down of traditional rules about how things are composed so could, could you speak to that a bit with regards to something like ready player one which well, seems to I just mean, be think, like characters think... running around <laughs> all the time yeah but at one and the same time it's a steven spielberg movie and it's very funny because and i think i made touch on this like Spielberg someone who 
in, let's say, the early to middle 1970s, as he's coming out of the gate, is somebody who's regarded as the absolute epitome of overkill. Right. You know, this massive backlighting, all of these whooshing, obtrusive camera movements, and flash forward 40-odd years, and he looks like, like the model of austerity (laughs) and like narrative clarity um so even though obviously it's incorporating elements from gaming and has a lot of different things sort of mixed up in its mulligan stew like the basic sort of aesthetic toolkit is somewhat let's say traditional it's not a total maelstrom at all like the big race sequence for example you know the space is very well articulated throughout you always have a pretty good idea of who is where and what the immediate obstacles that they're facing are so i mean even though it's bringing in a lot of 21st century vernacular the basic like grammar is fairly classical filmmaking grammar or at least in as much as that exists in the year 2018 Mm -hmm. I'd have to say that another interesting aspect of it is that, and you mentioned this in the article as well, that one thing about Ready Player One is that it envisions the, or, you know, the the stand-in for the internet is the Oasis, obviously. Mm. And interestingly enough, it has to portray the Oasis as more like a game space than than the web, you know, mm. or your phone, which is the way in which we actually, you know, usually uh, interact with the internet if we're not gaming. And so I think it's interesting that the game space is the one that this, that cinematic um, animation favors as a kind of trope for online connectivity because it kind of, as you mentioned, uh, cinema has still not figured out how to deal with the two-dimensional, fragmented space that is actual online connectivity right. uh, versus the three-dimensional continuous space that a game space offers. So the Oasis kind of solves that problem mm-hmm. for the movie because it can be about the internet without having to show the internet in in its kind of most common form as we would understand it. And instead, that in that space, the movie ends up being about the internet, more about the kind of culture of the internet or the a kind of feel of the internet it's it's kind of you know again these kind of disconnected intellectual properties that become kind of meme objects in that space and our you know emotional attachment to them our deployment of them in different ways so it's more like it's a displaced kind of uh experience of the contemporary internet into a more virtual reality space that doesn't quite exist yet and it's interesting as you mentioned that to think about the first representations of the internet as it started to sort of penetrate popular consciousness Mm -hmm. in the middle 1990s when there was some idea of what it was but a fair number of viewers still didn't have a lot of practical experience with it and for a short time movies were very excited (laughs) because you could make it into whatever you wanted wanted it to be rather than that actually quite like sedentary and boring experience of browsing so the yeah. you know the instance that i constantly return to is michael douglas's uh hacking adventure and disclosure where he winds up uh, sort of navigating his way through this like tutankhamun's uh tomb like space 
but it's also full of wood paneling yeah. for no good reason. Yeah. Yes, it's, uh, And then, you know, five minutes down the line, once a lot of people have at least some practical experience of what operating a browser is like, it's like, well, okay. It's like practical possibilities of this for dynamic uh, visuals are, let us say, limited. Yeah. yeah, we're more in like you've got male territory, yeah. if we're going to be honest. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I also think that, um, you know, this is... this. This kind of trope goes back before the web. I mean, when William Gibson talks about cyberspace and the mm -hmm. coining of the term in Neuromancer, he envisions that space as an incredibly kind of tactile and visual space that is in three dimensions, you know? And, uh, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to hack into the Tesher Ashpool, uh, you know, uh, server, it looks like a kind of bank vault or something like that. Yeah, this, this is like a medium specificity argument because the way in which you experience your phone is not how you experience a movie. And that's probably why people like us or David Lynch get very mad when you watch a movie on your little phone. But UI, user interface design, that's a completely different, that's, you know, it's a quote unquote science, right? Of how we are, our brains intuitively, again, I'm doing all scare quotes throughout all of this, listeners, please, it's mm. it's incredible. I'm owning uh, UI The fingers designers. have not stopped moving. Non-stop. There should be a sound effect cue for that, like, <laughs> ch -ch -ch. you know, every time you're like, well, ch -ch, uh, yeah. interface design, ch -ch. <laughs> But it is, but it is, they, they claim, you know, it's supposedly a science, it's supposedly like, oh, this is how your brain intuitively understands these you know, pages, and this is why, you know, it's, it's not, your brain hurt, your eyes hurt less when you use a Mac than when you use a PC, whatever, blah, 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 it's prettier, etc. But like, you can't, you can't have that same sort of like, fluid sort of plugging into your brain with film and just watch watching someone else like mm. endlessly scroll through something or text message somebody. And there, there's attempts at trying to replicate it where it's Unfriended like- Unfriended the dark web. Yeah, or like when they have like <laughs> the, the text messages. The only movie I'm looking forward to this summer. <laughs> <laughs> or when you know, or when the text messages pop up on the screen, there are ways around it, but they're they're fundamentally not what that experience is. I mean, you know, something like Personal Shopper or Wobble Palace get at the actual experience of it and manage to actually replicate some of that tension. But by and large, it is usually when people are representing the web, it is this uh, uh, flurry of uh, magical spaces, and it's like, no, this is actually. Um, the internet is sad and depressing. <laughs> it's not. It's not actually fun like this. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought uh, Happy Death Day was a good example of. Yes. I don't know if you saw that, but how all the, like it's such a great contemporary movie, but it's it it takes such narrative pains to remove the phones from its yes. protagonist's hands so that it doesn't screw up the narrative continuity right. and the logical you know isolation of the. You know, you it's like you can't have a horror movie in a in an age of connectivity. Right. So it has to like forcibly there's a lot of dead spots on the campus. One bar. Yeah, one exactly. Bar thing. Exactly. <laughs> so that, have like yeah. you know, somebody wandering around trying to get up yes. on like a hill holding their phone <laughs> up in the air. And then they get an axe in the back, but do you feel like um in terms of net art or people working in uh, a vernacular that is similar to that do you feel like they're dealing with movies and pop culture better than the other way around i mean i think a very strange state of affairs exists and i've probably said this ten thousand times in various uh mixed company so forgive me if i'm repeating myself <laughs> but 
it's very curious to me, and Ed is certainly one of the outliers in this and the sort of thing that he does in light industry and throughout his professional activities, even though net art, so-called, or post-internet art or whatever you want to call it, and film use essentially a lot of the same basic tools. I mean, both audiovisual arts, let's say, or in many incarnations are. There's not an enormous amount of back and forth that exists between cinephile culture and new media art culture. Like the rhizome readers are not film comment readers, generally speaking, and vice versa. And I've never wholly understood why that is, other than the fact that we live in a cultural environment that highly encourages heavy-duty specialization and sticking to a particular grammar for the work that you're talking about. But, I mean, I think it's so easy to bring the language of cinephile culture into talking about that sort of moving image artwork, like... You can, there is such a thing as desktop mise-en-scene. You can talk about it in those terms, if so inclined, Mm -hmm. but I don't see it very often being done. And as to why precisely that would be, I, I can't say. Well, I think the reverse is also true. I mean, it's true that cinema in general doesn't embrace that culture, but, you know, uh, artists who work with the internet, uh, you know, people like Corey Archangel and Ryan Tricartan, um, Jacob Chachi and so forth that you all mentioned in your piece. Um, what's interesting to me is that when they engage with pop culture, cinema is very low on the totem pole. Yes. It tends to be things from television, from video games, from from the Internet itself. And you rarely see a reference to a purely cinematic Uh, pop culture thing and that's kind of interesting too Um, I do think that the one overlap between as you're putting it like the film comment reader and the rhizome reader is definitely experimental cinema if you look at Corey Archangel's work and or talk to him you know for example he's really interested in say you know Ken Jacobs's work or you know things like that it makes much more sense that they that internet artists which which you know revolves around a certain kind of internet uh, or medium specific formal argument or at least an argument about the conceptual relevance of the internet it makes more sense that they'd be drawn to the kind of more medium specific concerns of experimental cinema uh, and artist cinema rather than popular cinema I have a really funny story about Corey. Actually, I went to see the third Matrix film with him because I thought uh, I thought that that it would be cool because you know I've known him for a long time and I thought oh you know who could be cooler to see the new Matrix film than with uh, than Corey Archangel. As it turns out, he hadn't seen the first two when I saw the fir- the third, and we all came out of the third being like, God, that sucked. What was that movie? And Corey's like, Whoa, wait a second. So there's a Matrix and like. They're trapped in it, and they're trying to revolt. You're saying you red pilled Corey Archangel. I I red pilled him, yeah, but like I, but it was like a stale red pill that somehow still worked on him. That's what we like to hear. There was another thing I want to bring up about your article, though, if that's all right. Sure. um, That I was thinking about. One thing with this concept of the glut, which I, which I totally agree, it, it feels like this. This feeling of like popular culture and its artifacts and its past is just like overwhelming it's just a Mm -hmm. giant trash heap and it can feel like how do you even navigate through it one thing i kept thinking about is that the answer to that the reaction to that trash heap that giant uh, agglomeration of things 
is this kind of fetish for what you know quote unquote curation Mm -hmm. and the people who can like navigate and select things for you and i think it's interesting i was looking through like nerd pages about ready player (laughs) one to see if like who can i find someone that has like a complete list of all the references right you know because actually i was talking to somebody else and they were complaining they're like well i don't like the movie because it celebrated spielberg's own film so much and i thought oh i don't remember seeing a lot of spielberg stuff but then i looked through and i was like okay yeah there's a bunch but but i think what's more interesting is that there is what feels like a glut is actually carefully selected in that movie, as you point mm. out, you know, meaning there's things missing that they probably couldn't get the rights for. We It, it favors three-dimensional characters over two-dimensional characters. We get, like, the guys from Halo, but we don't get Super Mario, you know? Um, but Super Mario exists in 3D form. I know, but he's not in the popular. movie. popular. Right, right, right. I mean, I believe it's largely determined also by Warner Brothers. Well, yeah. That's properties. what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. And so what feels like a kind of freedom or a kind of, uh, you know, shit storm of things <laughs> is actually very carefully chosen in a secret kind of way. There's a kind of corporate curation behind right. it. To get back to Roger Rabbit, it makes me think about a story that I don't know if it's true, but it's too good not to repeat. <laughs> that apparently, if you remember, there's a scene when Mickey meets uh, Bugs Bunny oh, in the yeah. movie. right? And, a, and my my memory is from reading about the making of the movie is that that, w- that scene existed as a part of a legal dispute between Warner Brothers and mm-hmm. Disney that if they were going to have the characters in the movie, their top characters, Mickey and Bugs, had to share the exact same amount of screen time and only appear on screen with each other and so they wrote a scene that simply allowed that to happen Mm. and I think that that kind of behind the scenes manipulation of these things that we all feel are quote unquote ours right right snip snip you know quote unquote (laughs) ours are really theirs like they belong to Disney they belong to Warner Brothers and they are using them in the way in which they they feel is suitable yeah Yeah. no and I saw this morning um, some because Star Wars fans are uh, going to Lucasfilm and asking for protection against creators, which is an insane concept that the, these fans feel like they need to be protected from the people who are creating this thing they're basing their lives around. And yet the Star Wars fans are also the ones like getting really mad at Ryan Johnson, bullying him, bullying Daisy Ridley off of Instagram, whatever. Like, they have this force. They are like a legitimate force. And obviously, the studios know that and they want to tap into that for when they, you know, release yet another Star Wars movie. Uh, and then like the one that makes only like $110 billion is like a failure or something. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, but that that there there still is like this weird sense of ownership and person, this personal relationship to this stuff. But ultimately, it is a very corporate thing. And like we need to, I think in coming years we need to sort of grapple with that more and that's something that i wish uh more filmmakers or even net artists would sort of deal with in a way that is like uh, truthful let's say well takeshi murata made a piece about like the 2010 or so where he realized that the popeye character uh it's core it's a uh, copyright was expiring in europe and so he took advantage of that to make a movie all around Popeye. And mm-hmm. I think it's just called Popeye. And he's CG animated Popeye and he makes him do all sorts of horrible things like get drunk and throw up and like, <laughs> you know, pass out. And, you know, it's, um, you know, any, anyways, but it that's jumps to mind as someone who like immediately tried to like grab onto that and see what would this be like to use this highly famous character and now just do whatever I want with him. Right. I mean, the, the Star Wars thing is particularly funny because we're only a... F- 
couple of years removed from the honeymoon of seeing these properties wrenched away from little George Lucas, who had uh, spoiled everyone's childhoods. So, I mean, there has to be some way that these poor guys can just get around any sort of interceding creative intelligence whatsoever. I guess that would be like fan fiction or... (laughs) I think it's really about the death of hobbies. I mean, people Mm -hmm. need to find other things to do than than tweet at a director because they don't like how they used, uh, you know, Prince Dukum or whatever. (laughs) You know, like, come on. It's true. It's true. And it is weird that, um, again, when we're coming up against this question of like, how do you represent the internet and you make it into this fun, exciting, visually tantalizing place? And it's like, no, it really is just like people on the same website hurling abuse at each other for like eight hours a day, at least. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I wrote in the piece and felt confident about at the time, but I've since had some reason to sort of second guess Uh, which I think sort of ties into what you were just saying, Ed, the death of hobbies, Mm -hmm. is I was sort of pointing to the idea that the turn of the millennium signaled the end of subcultural activity as Mm -hmm. traditionally understood and the end of the sort of mainstream underground dynamic that had served to organize how we thought about culture for the last, let's say, half century and some change. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, then for very obvious reasons, I was thinking, you know, quite a lot about the manosphere (laughs) and thinking about how do, you know, how do things like this, how do, you know, your men going their own way and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, your incels, your vol cells, your mental cells, how did these relate to the concept of a subculture? The difference of course is the culture aspect. Like if I'm trying to explain what goth was, I can point to an alien sex fiend record (laughs) and say, goth produced that. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure in terms of like cultural objects, what any web-based subculture puts forth. And I'm not sure, I mean, is subculture the word for these things? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that, I mean, what's interesting is that we, yeah, I agree with you, obviously, the the high-low subculture mainstream distinction has collapsed a long time ago, and yeah. but what's obviously replaced it is these kind of, you know, clades or factions where people mm-hmm. are in these kind of uh, pocket worlds where they really have these intense conversations unto themselves that, 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 convey meaning onto pop culture characters that other people might not understand. I mean, I think Pepe is a perfect example yes, of this, you know, yes. like, you know, RIP Pepe, but there's an example of, of, a, of a meme, a kind of cultural object that was widely used for various things, but in one particular sector, they started to assign a certain meaning to it. And then that meaning kind of once, you know, blew up and became part of the rest. And that's just one dramatic example right. of things we could talk about, you know, over and over again. So I think that what that is a kind of weird thing where it's not so much that these cultures are producing new, like, as you said, new characters or new things but they are producing new meanings for those things yes but those things as part of mass culture are the are what we have left as a kind of common currency between us um and then something like pepe you see how what happens when that currency gets you know debased is a good word but it's not exactly the right one i mean when that when they've kind of changed the value of that currency uh decisively you know Mm -hmm. and i think those kind of wars over these different characters like furries thinking that 
you know, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog is a sexual object or whatever, <laughs> or yeah. like, you know, all these kinds of weird twists of the mm-hmm. same materials uh, is maybe more online than actually creating new, new things. Yeah. 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 And these same materials are essentially the materials of what, I mean, what I would have thought of 10 or 15 years ago as nerd culture, but there's yeah. no point in calling it that any longer because it simply is the new monoculture. It's mass yeah. culture. Now. Yeah. 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 As somebody who doesn't participate in the Star Wars movies, who doesn't feel the need to do that, um, I can... You don't want to find out how Han Solo came to be? <laughs> Not, uh, still need to catch Persona, but that you can actually, through memes, you can understand something that happened on Game of Thrones. Because there's almost certainly going to be a meme made about something that happened on Game of Thrones that fits the particular subgroup internet niche that you're in. So I can understand, uh, the shame bell thing, or I can understand Captain America, I don't feel so good, and then dissolving. If, you know, Roseanne said something racist and her show gets canceled and there's a picture of Roseanne (laughs) dissolving, I can understand these things without actually having to watch the movie. I mean, again, to go back to cartoons, um, specifically like Looney Tunes, I remember as a child, Tiny Toons was huge for me because it allowed me to understand a lot of movies that I was far too young to see, or Animaniacs, even where it's like Good Feathers, which is just a parody of good fellas yes you're right to laugh but it's also it's like okay so that's they're just doing the movie but for children with pigeons and like you could understand it and then the weird experience of what having grown up with that and then actually watching good fellas eek the cat had a superlative taxi driver episode <laughs> i'm not kidding you not surprising i mean that's that's just an update of how a previous generation learned about peter Lorre. exactly you know what i mean where exactly. like you know, i definitely knew peter Lorre as a cartoon character before I uh, even understood he was an actual person. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But even those references in Looney Tunes have been lost. Like there are things that were very, very, very much of the time that were huge. And now we're just like, oh, that was just, I we don't I don't understand that anymore. So like that legibility doesn't live on as much. And it's like, do we, do, do, do children know who Peter Lorre is? <laughs> that's irrelevant but like my con- my concern scare quotes is that there's going to come a time where nothing kind of has any meaning anymore except for you know do, does it matter does, will it matter that J.R. Smith wasn't keeping track of the score and it's this just becomes like an image of disdain like does anything mean anything anymore probably not I mean, I think what's interesting is that things can retain a meaning while while losing the reference. Yes. You know, and I'm going to you know, there's a trigger warning here because what I'm going to say is like not politically correct kind sure. of thing. But, but I think a lot about about like the, the kind of racist uh, kind of uh, motif of that. Uh, I don't know even what it's called because I don't know a name for it. But in music, when like in Looney Tunes, if the like they want to oriental melody. Like, d- yeah. yeah, like da Right. Um, what's interesting about that is that we don't even know why that means that, you know, but, but we it, know what it means, but we know what it means. And <laughs> yeah. I would guess, and I'm probably, I mean, I, I would guess that that actually goes back to vaudeville or something that was probably a musical cue that far predated the cinema yes, and was used in like a, you know, vaudeville in the 19th century or something. And then it's just now to this day, we have it and we don't even know why it means that or where it started or it maybe it references a particular play. We just, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think about that all the time or, or like the director's chair. We use a director's chair mm-hmm. as this image for like filmmaking. But I do really wonder how many people actually think about, you know, the use of the director's chair in 
proper cinema, you know, in old old cinema or whatever. It's just become an icon of the director without the meaning really, or the monocle director or something right, like that. Right, right, right. You know? It's interesting to see how much of uh, Asian media is in Ready Player One as well. Yes. You know, there's some Gundam re- references. There's not a ton of it, but there are some. It's the you know? Akira motorcycle. There's Akira, right. Some of the more famous things. I mean, obviously, they could have gone much deeper mm-hmm. and in a way that the internet would or the global market would. But it's interesting that that, um, yeah, I just found it interesting that those were in there. Uh, although they tended to be, a few things were more contemporary that they used from uh, like anime and, and things like that. But then what's most, and forgive me, I don't immediately remember, the movie takes place in like 2045 or something like this. Something like that, yeah. yeah. But what's, I mean, immediately fascinating about it is it sort of posits a world where no significant pop cultural development has taken place since about 2000. Now, of course, (laughs) I mean, we have to operate under the assumption that maybe there are references to pop culture from the interceding 40-odd years, and certainly if they come after 2018, we wouldn't recognize them per se, but most of what we're looking at is pretty readily recognizable to somebody uh let's say who was born any time between 1972 and about 2000 Mm -hmm. um and part of it i suppose makes narrative sense because the idea is we're operating inside a space that is an extension of the brain and pop culture hang-ups of the Mark Rylance character whose name presently escapes me, who is somebody who sort of grew up in this period and would have been steeped in the popular culture of this period. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, his preoccupations sort of hang back a little bit. Um, But that, to me, is one of the more fascinating aspects of the movie. Is that without really getting into it it does sort of acknowledge the fact that we've hit a brick wall that we've sort of hit a standstill and pop culture as we know it presently is going to continue to be a matter of repurposing and uh, adding new meaning to or reconfiguring the existing meanings of this accumulated trove of characters and intellectual properties and stories and this is a very unusual state of affairs. Yeah. And we don't know if this is, is everyone from around the globe participating or is it just people who live in the stacks? It's difficult to say because like, you know, the fellow, the, the fellow gaming crew show up and I don't know how far they're showing up from. I mean, two right. of them are clearly of Asian or Asian American parentage, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they're coming in from Tokyo, or if they're coming in from Xenia, it's not really clear. Are there, yeah, are there, um, disused garbage crates in Tokyo that they're, they, they li- actually live in and then they plug into this magical. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, because uh, because of the success of uh, the company, uh, Columbus has become a boom town, which has then required all these favela <laughs> shanties going up outside of town yeah. in Westerville. It makes narrative sense within the world of the movie, right? Because they're all obsessed with this game, and this game is in turn obsessed with that very particular era of culture. Right. And so they're kind of regurgitating it back. 
Um, I don't think it's a correct image of what culture has actually had. I guess I'm going to disagree with Nick on that because if you go on Twitter, there's plenty of uh, there, there's plenty of kind of recirculation of 21st century things as well. You know, yes. like SpongeBob is like a major meme. Um, the, uh, the Simpsons. The Simpsons. Uh, Brit- steamed hams. Britney Spears. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure that within a few years, we're going to see like regurgitations of iCarly and like other kind of more contemporary, you know, contemporary children's media. So I don't think it actually has stopped. But I think what is right is that it's really just become an agglutinative enterprise. As you said, things don't displace each other. They simply add to the pile. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me that the logic of adding Y2K stuff uh, uh, or or later 21st century things is simply following the same logic. It's not it's not markedly different. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I keep getting hung up on, and it's because I suppose I couldn't possibly care any less about it, but I can't find any equivalent, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong. I can't find any equivalent in the annals of popular culture to something like Star Wars, which is now 41 years old. So has the same relationship today to today that 1936 would have to 1977. And what of the popular culture of 1936? I can't have an answer for that. The, uh, the Three Stooges. Ooh. As someone who was alive in 1977 as a, as a seven-year-old, I can attest that the Three Stooges were just as popular on television in the 70s. And in fact, in the 70s, a lot of 30s television was on heavy rotation on TV. So I watched a lot of 30s stuff on TV, 30s yeah, but you, crap. But you had a presence of the detritus of the 1930s in television. You yeah. did not, however, have a new Three Stooges, to yeah, my knowledge. in fact, there was a new Three Stooges cartoon in <laughs> All right, the I'm out. early 80s. <laughs> There was a Saturday morning cartoon based on the Three Stooges in the early '80s. Sorry, I'm you know I'm just gonna have to put the the Gen X uh, you know uh, uh, judgment on this. It, uh, <laughs> that is true, and also I think the '30s also appear in the '70s a lot of different ways. I mean, '30s fashion was very popular in the '70s. If you think about Madeline Kahn and what oh, yeah. she looks like at that that period, it's very much like a kind of '30s uh, glam thing. Um, Three Stooges, uh, even Abbott and Costello were still kind of happening. Uh, and it, although it's not 30s, it's a little later. I mean, Warner Brothers cartoons themselves are mm-hmm. perennial, and we still to this day uh, recognize them. And these are these are characters that began in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. All right. Well, that's shot to bits. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna bury Nick right after Nick, this. Sorry. You're you're. We're going to line you up against that wall. No, it's, it's a long time coming. <laughs> I'm like a comment. I'm, I'm just surprised it was Ed who finally came. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But it, I mean, I think your anxiety about the future is a very, is it's a perennial not, It's thing. not even anxiety per se. Okay, annoyance. <laughs> look great for your age, Nick. Yeah. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, I say bring it on. It's been a good run. Okay. <laughs> I want to just be shoveled under by <laughs> overstocked Jar Jar Binks toys. Well, we can end it there. But before we close, it would be great if we each went around and talked about a film that we saw recently that we liked. I'm going to talk about something that surprised me that I liked, uh, which is First Reformed. I am not a huge Paul Schrader fan. Sorry, Nick. But I really, really loved First Reformed. I thought it was such a beautiful and gripping and strange and oddly 
calming. I, I, you know, I could see, I could see both sides. And it was, it was it, for, for, for Paul Schrader, who for me is someone who's just so uneven. A lot of the most famous things he's done, I just can't get into, but this was um, just really uh, grabbed at my heart and shook it around and then put it back in my chest. So I highly recommend First Reformed if you've not seen it yet. I don't. I don't think you Fairweather Schrader fans get to have this. I think if you weren't down with Adam Resurrected, if you weren't into the canyons, you don't get to just waltz in and pick the one you like. I don't like this one bit, so I reject that. If you 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 clearly need to go back to like remedial uh, Schrader camp. Um, I tell you, Violet, it's a tough one because I've not been watching a lot. The last film that I saw theatrically was a little something called Book Club. Oh. And it's uh, terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But I can talk about it a little bit. Sure, tell us what... what... Because I think it it was my friend Nellie Killian who made this comment via Twitter that uh, she thought while watching it that... uh, is it possible for a motion smoothing setting to be on <laughs> theatrically? Because it is the most hideously shot major motion picture, whatever the air quotes yeah, yeah. Uh, sound is, that I think that I've ever seen. And there's one scene where Candace Bergen gives what's supposed to be sort of a pivotal monologue. And the entire movie's shot in like 2.35 widescreen. No reason for that whatsoever. Just talking heads adrift in vast fields of space um hey remember when quentin tarantino did that yeah it's like genius um, <laughs> okay but it's it's um it's murphy brown giving a sort of pivotal monologue and it's just her and then off to the far side there's uh it's in a sort of modern los angeles home that's decorated with objet d'art and there's just this surfboard that has written on it the words, this is art. (laughs) (laughs) The strangest, most uneven, disorienting composition (laughs) that I think I've ever seen. So you have like, and it's impossible to pay any attention to, you know, what's supposedly the point of the scene because you just have on one side... Candace Bergen, and on the other extreme side of the screen, the top of a surfboard that has the words, this is art, written on it. And you just can't help but stare directly at this, like, Godardian insertion of language into the scene. (laughs) So it's a total piece of garbage, but, like, definitely a kind of interesting cinematic experience and totally an object lesson in just the degradation of the most basic assumptions of competence in cinematographic like (laughs) language in american studio filmmaking because if you look at like a movie that's not considered to be a visually sumptuous film from say 35 years ago if you look at national lampoon's vacation today Mm -hmm. and you look at it compared to just to draw an example out of the ether train wreck national lampoon's vacation looks like a fucking svinnikvist like yeah shot film yeah it looks ravishing comparatively and it's national lampoon's vacation so yeah book club go out and see it (laughs) 
I was blissfully unaware of that movie until you, uh, you brought it in. Um, I, I also don't have things that I liked, but uh, uh, I, ba- I I recently got a TV for the first time in like eight years. Mm. And so I've been torrenting and binging all the things that I was too snobby to watch on my computer. Okay. Um, but two of the things that I watched that are not, not too... I, I watched Annihilation and The City in the City, which is the BBC four-part miniseries uh, adaptation of the China Mayville novel. I read both novels. Annihilation was awful. There's, I mean, it's a very kind of subtle, weird novel, and they made it into this like candy-colored, obvious film mm. where at one point a, a character says, you know, uh, this will mean annihilation. No! You know? <laughs> city in the City was better. It's kind of like an unfilmable novel that they mm. somehow made into a TV series and up to the kind of police procedural part of it, but I, th- I thought it was really enjoyable. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both for coming. And um, thank you for podcasting through the years, Violet. <laughs> thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being a friend. And uh, I'll see you both at the movies. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle, at filmcomet.com slash app.